0: Well, Burke Burke O'Connell may have to give up on tattoos. Okay, I read about Burke recently in the news. Burke is a huge New England Patriots fan. And so uh, several weeks back, two days before the Patriots played the Denver Broncos in the AFC title game, the game that would determine who goes to the Super Bowl, Uh, Burke got a little ahead of himself. He went out and got a, a fresh tattoo. He had the logo of the Patriots put on his calf, along with the words, Super Bowl 50 champs. Yeah, if you know the story, you know that they lost to the Denver Broncos, they didn't make it to the Super Bowl, and so Burke now has a somewhat embarrassing, but very permanent reminder that he put his money on the wrong horse. Okay, and this isn't the first time that this has happened to Burke. Uh, One or two years ago, he had his girlfriend's name tattooed on his chin, not making this up, shortly before she broke up with him. Okay, not a good idea. But you know, before Burke gets one more tattoo, I would recommend that he carefully consider what he's setting his heart on. What he supremely values, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. What is it we value most, and how do we express that? Because what we supremely value, what we set our hearts on, has a huge impact on our lives. Now, the Bible has a word for that sort of valuing. The Bible calls it worship. Our, our word worship comes from the old English word worth and so worship is ascribing ultimate worth to something in our lives. Now, for Burke O'Connell, that's ascribing ultimate worth, supreme worth to the, uh, to the New England Patriots, and uh, prior to that to his girlfriend. Not the best choices. But what do we worship? What do we set our hearts on? And to help you get at that in your own life, let me, let me ask it of you this way. What causes your emotions to go up and down? Okay, what gets you high, what brings you low? What preoccupies your thoughts? What dictates your schedule? You know, the thing that everything else has to revolve around. What eclipses all your other priorities? Is it your job? Is it getting good grades or being popular at school? Is it your grandkids? Is it some recreational activity? Is it food and drink? Is it your favorite sports team? See, whatever we consistently ascribe the highest worth to, whatever we worship, so to speak, is going to profoundly impact our lives, shape us. And so today, I want to make a case for the importance of worshiping God. We're going to be talking about the regular practice of ascribing worth to God. That's one of the reasons why we gather at Christ Community Church across four campuses on weekends. We come to worship God. And today, we're going to learn why participation in worshiping God is so vital to our lives. And if you're ready to check out because you're thinking, well, you know, I kind of got dragged here. I'm really not into worship. Let me say to you, oh, yes, you are. We all worship. It's just a matter of what what is it that you ascribe ultimate worth to. We're going to talk about the value of ascribing ultimate worth to God. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 63. You'll find Psalm 63 right in the middle of your Bible. We're beginning a six-part study in the book of Psalms today that's going to continue right on through our Good Friday, right on through our Easter services. The series is called Playlist. Psalms for the Head and Heart. So while you're turning to the book of Psalms, let me give you some background to this book of the Bible. The Hebrew title for this book is Book of Praises. Book of Praises. And when the book was translated, when Psalms was translated from Hebrew into Greek, which was a couple of centuries before Jesus, a version called the Septuagint, the Septuagint's title for Psalms is Poems Sung to the Accompaniment of Stringed Instruments quite a mouthful, poems sung to the accompaniment of stringed instruments. In other words, this is a book of songs. Psalms is a book of songs. Many of these were originally composed for choirs that were to lead the temple worship services. In fact, here's an interesting thought to think about. These are the songs that Jesus would have grown up on. These are the songs that Jesus would have learned to sing at an early age, that he would have sung around his house. If there had been an iTunes in Jesus' day, he would have downloaded Psalms onto his iPod or his smartphone, created a playlist. These are the songs he would have sung along with. So 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms. They were composed over the span of many centuries by a variety of authors before they were, they were collected together into one book. So some of the earliest ones, a couple of the Psalms, were written by Moses way back in 1400 B.C. Now, the, the guy who wrote the majority of the Psalms is who? Do you know this? King David, around 950 B.C. David wrote 73 of the Psalms. David was a rugged warrior He was a great king. He was also an excellent musician, played a mean electric harp. Maybe not electric, but he was was a talented musician, wrote 73 psalms. About 50 of the psalms are anonymous. You know, 27 of the psalms have names attached to them, funny names like Asaph and Sons of Korah and so on. Okay, enough background on the Psalms. Today we're going to zero in on Psalm 63. I'm calling it a song of worship, and I want to draw from Psalm 63 four reasons why the regular practice of worshiping God is so important. So if you haven't taken your outline out yet, take it out and put this down as number one. Why is worshiping God so important? Because worship satisfies thirst. Worship satisfies thirst. Let me read the opening verse of Psalm 63 to you. David says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. I don't know if you've ever been in Israel. It gets really hot and really dry in Israel. Uh, in fact, I can remember one of the first times Sue and I went, we've been four times now, uh, and the, the guide told us always to keep a water bottle handy. In fact, one of the first things we were going to do is take a wall walk around Jerusalem. The ancient walls date back to the time of the Crusaders, and there's a path along the top of it, a three-mile path, and you could walk around the old city. And he said, bring, bring a water bottle. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't need a water bottle. I never go anywhere with, I'm just not a water bottle type of guy. I don't bring water out with me when I mow the lawn in the summer. I don't put a water bottle on my bike when I go biking. I just, I'm not, I don't need water. A measly three-mile walk, I could make it. So we're up there and we're about halfway around the old city of Jerusalem on the wall walk. And finally, I'm so desperate, I turn to the guy behind me who I've never met before in my life and say, could I get a sip of your water there? (laughs) Very embarrassing. I was desperate. Okay, David writes this psalm, Psalm 63, not just in, in Jerusalem, in the Jerusalem area, but outside of Jerusalem in the desert of Judah. The desert. Now, we know that because of the superscription at the beginning of the Psalms. So if you've got your own Bible, and this is where it's helpful to bring your own Bible, it says Psalm 63, but before verse 1 begins, there, there, there's some italicized words, a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. This is what's called a superscription. The superscription is not original to the Psalm. Okay, superscriptions are added to many, if not most, of the Psalms by an editor who later on figured it would be helpful for us if we knew who supposedly wrote this psalm and under what historical conditions and so on. So this is not inspired word of God, but it's helpful information, much like the footnotes in your NIV study Bible. So what we learn here is that David writes this psalm in the desert of Judah. In the desert of Judah. Now we're going to come back later on, and talk about why he was in the desert of Judah. But the point I want to make here is that when David writes in the opening verse of Psalm 63 that he thirsted for God like like a guy in a dry and parched land where there is no water, David knew what he was talking about. David knew what it was like to have a desperate desire for water, and he likened a thirst, a desperate desire for God to a, a desperate desire for water. Now, I want to talk about desires for for just a minute here because human beings are wired to desire. You are wired to desire. Every day we live with strong desires, and those desires shape our lives. You know, that that great theologian, Harry Potter, discovered this. Okay, if you've read the first book, at least, or seen the first movie of the Harry Potter series, there's an encounter that Harry has with this magical mirror called the Mirror of Arased. Remember this? The, the, the writer of the book is writing for kids, so it's not too subtle. Arased is desire spelled backwards. Okay, so Harry looks into the mirror. You remember what he sees? He sees his mom and his dad reaching out for him. Now, what's so amazing about this is that uh, Harry had never known his mom and dad. They had died when he was an infant, and so he's, he's amazed. He runs off and he gets his best buddy, Ron, and he says, you got to see this. And he brings Ron to the mirror, and Ron looks into the mirror, and he doesn't see Harry's mom and dad. Ron sees Ron as a, a super sports hero. Harry's mentor comes along and he explains the deal behind the mirror. He says, when you look in the mirror, what you see is what you ultimately desire, what your heart desperately longs for. That's what you see. You know, different for every person. And then the mentor quickly warns them. He says, we got to get rid of this mirror. Because many people waste away their lives looking into this mirror. That's the trouble, friends, with the things that we desire in this life. The things that we set our hearts on. The things that we thirst for. They don't really satisfy our thirst. They can't. Now, Tim Keller is a New York Times best-selling author, one of my favorite authors. He's the pastor as well of a large multi-site church in Manhattan, so he knows how to communicate with secular people about God. And he has written this book called Counterfeit Gods. Counterfeit Gods. And in the book, Keller says that our desires, our thirsts fall into three major categories. Satisfaction, security, and significance. Okay, our desires fall into the categories of satisfaction, security, and significance. So, satisfaction means we desire the things we think will make us happy, whether, whether that's playing a round of golf, or going shopping, or getting a date to the next dance, or playing the hottest new video game, or, you know, we're, we're looking for something to give us a thrill second category, the second S is security. Our our desires revolve around financial security, health security, relational security. We want want friends. And and then the third S is significance. Our, 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 Our desires have to do with the things we take pride in. You know, a title at work or the college that we want to get into or the kind of car we drive or our kids' accomplishments. Our desires revolve around these things. We, we thirst for things that will provide satisfaction, security, and significance. When, when we look into Harry Potter's mirror, we see the sorts of things I just mentioned. That's, that's what we desire. Those are the things we're, we're hoping will quench our thirst. But those things never do. You know, they, they, they never do. They, they either disappoint us entirely... You know, our favorite sports team comes to the end of the season and fades in the final weeks. Or our financial investment goes belly up. Or our girlfriend drops us for some other guy. Our dream job turns out to drain our lives. Or, if they don't disappoint us entirely, our, our desires, the things we count on to quench our thirst, quench our thirst momentarily only. So we're, we're looking forward to this vacation, and the vacation comes, and it's fantastic. But a month later, we're looking for our next vacation. We're bored again. You know, or or we, we work our tails off to get good grades at school, and we're done with school. And guess what? We've discovered nobody cares about our GPA. Our kids, our lives are ra- revolve around them when they're little they're so cute as toddlers and then they grow up they get older they get rebellious and it's hmm, not as much the thirst quencher it once was I don't know what you're thirsty for today but I can guarantee that other than God what we're hoping will quench our thirst won't and that's why David in the opening verse of Psalm 63 tells us that he thirsts for God David thirsts for the only true and lasting thirst quencher, God. Th- this is why David developed the habit of worshiping God regularly. You know, setting aside time to focus his attention and his affections and his praise upon God. Doing this, this activity was a big deal to David. In fact, there's, there's an interesting word in the opening verse I'd like you to circle if you've got your own Bible. It's the word earnestly. He says, you God are my God, earnestly I seek you. You see that? I thirst for you. Scholars tell us that the word earnestly can be translated in one of two ways from the original Hebrew. You know, one of the ways is to translate it as earnestly. But this, the Hebrew word here, comes from the same root from which we get our word dawn, D-A-W-N, dawn, like the beginning of the day. So it it could be that David is saying earnestly, I seek you, but it could be, and the old King James version translates it this way, he could be saying early, I seek you. In other words, when the sun comes up, the first thing I want to do is seek God. You know, this is the number one priority of my day. I don't want my day to get away from me without me dedicating time to worshiping God. Friends, this needs to be our determination with regard to worshiping God. Whether whether it's the worship of God that we give him on a daily basis or when we gather together in our corporate worship times on the weekend at Christ Community Church, this has got to be a top priority. Why? Why? Because if we're not direct, listen, if we're not directing our thirst toward God, who alone can quench it? Then we're, we're going to be trying to satisfy our thirst with, with other stuff that, that will never do the job. That will be our default. If we're not spending time seeking God to quench our thirst, we will, we will seek other things to quench that thirst, and they won't do a very good job. You get it? Good. It's the first lesson we learn about worship and its importance. Here's the second lesson. Worship builds community. Back to the psalm, pick it up at verse 2. David says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. That's a line to park on for a while, isn't it? Your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. Now, now, now we've already noted from the superscription of this psalm that David writes this song when he's in the desert of Judah. In other words, David was at a distance from Israel's community worship center. In his day, it was called the tabernacle. Later on, it would become the temple. I mean, at this point in time, he didn't have the opportunity to participate in corporate worship services. Now David knew he knew he could worship God on his own. He could worship God anytime, anywhere. But he also knew that there's something very special about gathering together with other believers to give God praise. And that's what David misses in the verses I just read to you. That's what David longs for. You know, hanging out with other people who want to worship God with him. You know, we picked this up in a couple of places in the verses I, I just read to you. Go back to verse 2. He says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. I've seen you in the sanctuary. Now, let me ask you a question. If I asked you, where have you seen the power and the glory of God? Okay, what what immediately comes to your mind? Where have you seen the power and the glory of God? Wouldn't most of us immediately answer someplace out in nature? Oh, whoa, the power, the glory of God. It's like when I'm looking at the Rocky Mountains, right? Or when I'm out on the West Coast and I'm gazing at a sun setting over the Pacific Ocean. Or, Or I'm out in the... The woods camping, and it's a starry night, and the, clo- the, the sky is clear, and there are a bazillion stars at the, the power and the glory of God. David says, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. David had seen the power and glory of God in this tabernacle, this tent, this musty old tent. What what was it about the experience that caused him to behold the power and the glory of God? You know, Bible scholars say what David may have in mind here is that occasion when he brought the the Ark of the Covenant into the tabernacle. If you know the story, the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen for a while by an enemy army, but it was being returned to Israel. And so David is leading a praise procession, a parade, and there are people dancing and, you know, singing, and there's a band, and he's jumping up and down, and the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the presence of God, is being brought to the tabernacle to be put in the holy of holies, the most holy place. And maybe that's what David has in mind. But whatever the case, it's obvious that he's thinking this is a community hoedown, okay? This is a big worship celebration. And that's where he sees the power and the glory of God in community with other people. You know, there, there's another indication of this down in verse 5. He says, I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. David associates food and worship. Some of us associate food with everything, right? But why, why the association between food and worship? Well, again, in Old Testament times, uh, worship was often accompanied by the, the offering of a sacrifice. Now, if you were paying for your sins, because God had said that the wages of sin is death, okay, you want to go your way instead of God's way, you want to separate from the giver of life, you die. That's the penalty. But God said he would accept in place of a human life, the life of a substitute animal. And so some of the sacrifices were animals brought as sin offerings, guilt offerings, and they were totally consumed on the altar. When they were done burning, there was nothing left. But they weren't the only kind of offerings brought to the worship center. There were also offerings of thanksgiving. Could be animals, could be a part of your crop, your grain. And when you offered these, a portion of them would be returned to you so that you could celebrate, so that you could feast with the other people who had come with you to the temple. So once again, in the back of David's mind, he's thinking of those occasions when he's worship-partied with other believers. There, there, there's something very special about worshiping God with other people. You know, worship builds community. Our praise of God is richer. It's more meaningful when we're doing it with others. You now, C.S. Lewis, who is the uh, famous author of the, the children's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, was also an astute scholar Cambridge and Oxford. He's written a book on the Psalms, a book about worship, and he uses an analogy in his book to describe why it's so important to get together with other people when you're worshiping. He he, he tells the story of how he used to have two really close friends, Charles and Ronald. They did everything together. They were always hanging out together until one day Charles passed away. And, and while Lewis was grieving for, for Charles, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, well, well, maybe I'll get closer to Ronald now. okay? Because it used to be three of us, now it's just the two of us, we're going to relate that much better. And he discovered it didn't work out that way. He discovered that, that missing Charles, there, there was something that Charles, when they were hanging out together, something that Charles had managed to see in Ronald that Lewis didn't see. There were things that Charles could draw out of Ronald that Lewis couldn't draw out of Ronald. You, you see where this analogy is going. Lewis is making the point that worshiping God is enhanced when we're participating in it with other people. Because other people enable us to appreciate God in ways that that we just wouldn't on our own. So so the more people worshiping together, the better. The the more variety, the greater the worship. You know, to have together young and old, male and female, black, brown, white, rich and poor, traditional hymn lovers along with rock-out worship song lovers variety. And every once in a while, somebody will say to me, hey, wouldn't it be a great idea if we kind of uh, had a separate worship service for our students, our middle school and high school students? I say, no. Or you know, wouldn't it be a good idea if we had a special worship service for people who love traditional church music? We kind of gave them their own. I said, no. If you're a middle school, high school student, I, wa- I want you to know we need you in our worship services that you enrich our worship times together. If you're a traditional hymn lover, we don't do as many traditional hymns as you would love us to do, but we need you here. So there is a richness to our worship when we do it in community. Now, there are three ingredients to this worshiping community I want you to see in verses 2 through 5. Real simple, straightforward things. First, you need a gathering place. David saw God in the sanctuary where he got together with other believers. You know, gathering place means we all got to agree that we're going to carve out time every week, a certain time, and we're going to go to the same place in St. Charles or Bartlett or Blackberry Creek or DeKalb where we get together with other believers. We're going to make it happen. We're going to protect this time. We need a a gathering place. there's, There's nothing exceptional about the places in which we gather, the buildings themselves. In fact, you Decal people know that you're, you're, you're currently meeting in a building that was a, you know, a tire store, an old Farm and Fleet building. However, even though the buildings, the brick and mortar, are not special, what goes on in those gathering places is very special. You know, This is where many of us have experienced life change, where, where our griefs have been addressed, where the Holy Spirit has spoken to us. There's been some message, some song, some uh, encounter with another Christ follower that has helped us in a walk with God. We need a gathering place. Secondly, we need some truths about God. We're going to do community worship, Verse 2, David talks about God's power and his glory. Verse 3, he talks about God's love. You know, these are just three of God's many attributes. How do we know about God's attributes? How do we know about God's power and his glory and his love? You know, these are truths that God reveals about himself in the pages of Scripture. Scripture. In in, in fact, the Psalms, as we're going to discover over the next six weeks, they are full of references to God's attributes. This book is loaded with input, insight about who God is. You know, we can learn a lot about God by digging into the Psalms, God's revelation of himself to us. And these truths about God that we celebrate when we gather for worship, they contribute to our sense of community. See, if we gathered together and everybody brought their own contrasting view of God, well, I think he's like this and I think he's like that, it wouldn't be community, it'd be confusion. But when we get together and our our worship centers upon truths, common truths about God that we're all drawing from the same book, God's book, we experience community. You know, which is why you could jump on a plane and go with one of our GO teams. You could go to Bangladesh, you could go to Sierra Leone, You could go to the Czech Republic. You could go to Brazil or to to Haiti or to Nicaragua. And you'll experience a lot of differences. You know, people of a different culture, a different race, different vocations, different dress, different styles of music. But when you gather together with believers in those places to worship, there will be an experience of community. Like you say, wow, this is incredible. Why? Because the worship centers on the common truth about God that we all look to. But by, by the way, we work really hard as a team. We spend hours every week designing our worship services, our weekend worship services to make sure that we're communicating truth about God. So when we select songs, you know, we just don't choose the hottest things that are out there in contemporary Christian music. We want to know that we got songs, whether it's contemporary songs or old hymns that are speaking truth about God. Because these truths are going to shape our lives. So we're not choosing songs on the basis of cool guitar riffs or loud drum parts. or what. We're choosing our songs on the basis of the truths that they communicate about God. You know, when we ask you to recite Scripture with us in the first part of our worship service each week, or when we ask you to pray and we carefully craft some of those prayers to make sure that we're communicating truths about God, that's our intention, truth. Because truth not only reveals God to us, it builds our community. And then the third ingredient that I would note here, it's part of a worshiping community, is expressive praise. You know, when David gathered with other believers to worship God, he threw himself into it. Verse 3 talks about his lips glorifying God. Verse 4, he says that his hands are raised in praise of God's name. Verse 5, again, he goes back to his mouth, his lips, and he says, with With his mouth, he praises God. David was part of an expressive worship community. Now, I know that for some of you who gather weekly with us, uh, our level of expressiveness here makes you just a little bit uncomfortable. Right, If you're not uncomfortable for yourself, you're uncomfortable because you brought a friend, and right next to you is some guy belting out a worship song, shouting or lifting hands up in the air, or even doing one of these. Like, whoa, that's a little too much for you. I want you to know I pray for more people like that. I do. Because if if you're weirded out by, let, let me tell you what I think is even weirder yeah, I think it would be really strange if you go to a, a football game and there are no fans fist pumping there. I think that would be strange, wouldn't you? You know, I think it would be strange if you're a parent and you, you go to one of your kids' grade school production and there are no parents enthusiastically clapping at the end of the, of the performance. I think it would be strange if you go to a rock concert and nobody's dancing like they're standing there. I think it would be strange if you go to a political rally and there's no one shouting slogans. I think that would be strange. I, I, I think it's kind of strange when we try to worship an incredible God and we don't do it expressively. I That's kind of weird. So I'm praying for more weirdos out there, all right? See, I'm praying, you know... In fact, again, in terms of strangeness, there are times when we actually sing songs about raising. The lyrics say, I lift my hands up to the Lord, and 80% of us are like this. And I'm like, are you kidding me? How can you sing, I lift my hands up to the Lord? Now, if you're wondering, well, why should I do that? Let me just say it's a posture that makes a statement. The statement is, I'm dependent upon you. It's like a child reaching up to a parent. Pick me up, Dad. You know, I thirst for you. Nothing else can fill the void in my life. I gotta have you. Try it, okay, try. Go go from this to this, at least, okay? And then next week, go to this. Okay. All right. Okay, that's, that's the, the community. It just builds community. It's wonderful when we gather together and we all contribute to this worship. Here's a third thing I want you to know about what, you know, what worship does for us. Worship creates intimacy. Talking about intimacy with God. So go back to Psalm 63. In verse 6, David moves from community worship to personal worship. Worshiping God in the privacy of his, of his home or elsewhere. Pick it up, verse 6. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Okay, verse 6, David says that he, he focuses his thoughts on God. In other words, he worships as he's lying in bed at night. Now, real practically here, how does David do that? You know, I mean, it's one thing to worship when you gather together with other believers at a carefully crafted weekend service. And there's a band on stage. There's a worship team on stage. They're putting lyrics on the screen. So all you got to do is look up and sing along. They've chosen scriptures for us to read out loud together. They're leading us through prayer. But what about when you're lying on your bed at night? What do you say? Or you're, you're standing by yourself in the house over the kitchen sink washing dishes. Or you're traveling in your car on your way to school or your way to work. What, what does worship look like? Well, It's still got to revolve around God's attributes that we discover in Scripture. It's still got to revolve around praising God for whom he's revealed himself to be in the Bible. So let me give you, let's get real practical here. Let me give you several practical suggestions. Okay, one way to start worshiping God on a daily basis is to use the Psalms. Just pray one or two Psalms back to God every day. Just slowly work your way through the book of Psalms. These are songs of praise to God. Read them out loud. Read it out loud like you're talking to God, you're offering it to God. Every time you come across one of those attributes, those characteristics, this is what God is like. Circle it in your Bible. Now, I know some people who read five psalms a day every day because five psalms a day times 30 days in a month, you read through the entire book of 150 psalms every month. And then the next month, you start over and you do it again. In fact, Tim Keller, whose book I quoted from a little earlier, uh, Tim and his wife have been doing this for 30 years. Five psalms a day, they make notes in the margin, things that uh, God's Spirit, you know, strikes them with or some... NIV footnote, uh, scholarly insight they 'll write it in the margin of their Bible, and they just published this year published a brand new book that 's a compilation of all these devotional thoughts about the psalms, thirty years accumulated. So let me give you another idea how you might want to do this. We provide a list at the information center. Uh, at uh, every one of our campuses. In fact, you can now get this list on the phone app, on the CCC phone app. It's an A to Z list of 250 attributes of God. Now, we have called these out of Scripture. You stop and think about it. Most of us, if I said, okay, here's a quiz. How many attributes of God can you name? You know, we'd all name the familiar ones. Well, he's loving, he's merciful, he's all-powerful, he's holy, he's... ran out of gas 250 of them 250 attributes of father son or spirit or titles by which god goes in scripture we got a list you could use that list i use that list at least two or three times a week and what i do is i just i pull one or two attributes off of that list and i pray it back to god So if I'm in the bees and I come across bright, because Scripture says God is bright, I I may pray something like this, oh, God, you're bright. You know, when you shine into my life, you dispel the darkness of my sin. Thank you. God, you are bright. When you shine on the path of my life and I'm confused and I don't know which way to go and what to do with this decision, you illuminate my way. Oh God, you are bright. You're bright like the sun when you shine into my heart. You take away the coldness. You warm me. See how it goes? One word, bright. And you pray it back to God. Anything you can think of. In my book, Prayer Coach, I devote an entire chapter teaching you how to do this. So if you've never read that, pick up the book. Go to that chapter The A to Z prayer list, praise list. One last thing I'd recommend to you. If you want to inject some worship into your daily life, download some worship music. So when you hear a song that you really love at our services, go to iTunes. Download it onto your iPod or your your smartphone and play it back while you're working out or, or driving in your car. Sing it to the Lord. Memorize the lyrics of some of the hymns that we sing. I mean, Oh, this is so rich. Now, I've been doing this for years, this memorizing hymn lyrics when I latch on to a hymn that's got some deep truth about God. In fact, this past week as I was studying Psalm 63 and I'm coming to verse 6 and the psalmist says, on my bed I remember you, I think of you through the watches of the night. I say, I do that. And I, I typically do it with hymns. So when I get up in the middle of the night, which when you get into your 50s, you do a little more. uh, You know, when I get up to use the restroom or I get up because I'm, you know, I'm concerned about my kids or I get up because I'm tossing and turning. I'm sick with a cold or whatever. You know, what I try to do in getting back to sleep is to take a hymn like great is thy faithfulness. Just pray it back to God. Great is thy faithfulness. Oh, God, my father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I've needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Memorize the lyrics of some good worship music. Recite it back to God. So this is what builds intimacy with God, these personal, private worship times. That's why David says in verse 8, look at verse 8 again. He says, my soul, I cling to you, God, and your right hand upholds me. You know, Bible scholars say that the verb cling there is a, a verb that pops up elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe the closeness of the relationship between a husband and a wife, clinging together. Do you know that kind of intimacy with God if you want it? It may not come through, through simply reading the Bible more or praying more or getting in another community group or finding another place to serve. All wonderful things to do. But if you want an intimacy with God, let me recommend to you personal worship. Personal worship. Here's a uh, fourth and final thing that worship does for us. It restores perspective Drop down to the closing verses of the psalm. Pick it up at verse 9. David says, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Okay, I'm finally re- ready to tell you what David was doing in the desert of Judah. He was on the run. Okay, here's the back story, and I'm am not going to give you all the details. You can read it for yourself sometime in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 19. But David had a rebellious son, a grown son by the name of Absalom, who hated David's guts. And I won't go into that part of the story. You'll have to read that on your own. But very subtly, he was trying to win the throne away from his dad. And the way he, he would do it, okay, on the surface, all smiles. But he would stand outside the palace every day, and as people would come to his dad, the king, King David, with problems, Absalom would stop them and say, hey, let me hear what's going on in your life. Oh, you know, if I were king, I could really help you with that. And slowly over time, he was endearing people to himself. Until finally he left town one day, went to another city, raised up an army, and prepared to lead a coup to take the throne from his dad. And David got wind of it. And, and, and David didn't want to put the people of Jerusalem, the capital city, he didn't want to put them in harm's way. He didn't, didn't want them to be caught between two warring armies. And so he fled down. And David's army later assaulted Absalom's army. It was a huge battle. 20,000 soldiers were killed in the battle, including Absalom. And the mutiny, the coup was snuffed out. And, and so now when you read Psalm 63, you, you understand why David says in verse 9, there are those who want to kill me. Now, now you know who he's talking about in verse 11 when he speaks of the mouth of liars. He's talking about Absalom. He's talking about a situation he's, you know, he's caught in the middle of. Now, some very liberal Bible scholars, they don't think that verses 9 through 11 belong in Psalm sixty three. They say, oh, these verses are too harsh. They're too, too vindictive. You know, how, how could David go from praising God in verses 1 to 8 to talking about his enemies as being destroyed and being given over to the sword and becoming food for jackals in verses 9 to 11? I mean, surely these aren't David's words. Someone must have come along later and added them to this psalm. No. Now, those who say that the closing verses of Psalm 63 don't fit the rest of the psalm, they don't get real worship. See, real worship springs from real lives that are are filled with disappointments and frustrations and life crises and dangers. Real worship reminds us of the greatness of God whom we desperately need to show up in our lives when life is hitting the fan, right? Right? You know, as, as we're singing and we're reciting God's many attributes on our own or in times of corporate worship, we gain confidence that God can take care of us. We don't need to fear our Absalom. God's got Absalom's number. See, worship restores perspective. So, Some of you came to church today with an Absalom. On your back, your Absalom may be math class that you're failing. It may be a chronic health problem. It may be financial trouble. It may be conflict in your marriage. It may be a baby that doesn't sleep through the night. It may be a a job that's over-demand. I don't know what your Absalom is, but when we neglect worship, let me tell you what happens. God starts getting small on us, which makes our problems seem that much more ginormous. But when we take the time to extol God, when we praise God for who he is, God gets bigger and our problems shrink. See, so worship restores perspective. Now, as we close today, I want to remind you, I'm going to invite our worship teams to come out on the platforms across our four campuses because we're going to sing a song that reminds us that God is our everything. He's our everything. We're going to bring our gifts our offerings as part of our worship to God. But let me remind you of four good reasons to become a consistent worshiper. Reason number one, it satisfies thirst. And nothing else that you seek, no other desire you pursue will quench your thirst, only God. Worship, secondly, builds community. When we come together and we worship together, there's a a sense of unity. There's insight into who God is that each of us brings to the party. Worship creates, thirdly, it creates intimacy. If you want a closer relationship with God, try adding worship to your daily life. And finally, worship restores perspective, makes God bigger, problems smaller. You know, as I I meditated on Psalm 63 this week, I couldn't help but think of some words of Jesus centuries later. After reading David saying, I thirst for God like a a man in a dry and parched land. I was thinking of that occasion when Jesus sat on the side of a well and a woman came to draw water and he looked at her and he said, you know, if you want I could give you living water. And then he went on to explain, he said, that water that you just just drew out of the well, you're going to drink it and you're going to get thirsty again. But I could give you water, living water, that will become a a spring, an artesian spring in your soul. He was speaking about himself. You know, unless you could say in the opening line of this psalm, Oh God, you are my God, your thirst is going to go unquenched. If you've never surrendered to Christ, the thirst quencher, the one who gives living water, let me encourage you to do it today. He died on the cross to pay for your sins. Your sin keeps you from a relationship with a holy God. It keeps you from drawing close so that you can have your thirst assuaged. So you come to him and you surrender and you say, thank you for giving your life to pay the penalty for my sins so that I could be given forgiveness, a relationship with God that will satisfy me fully. And then you begin a lifelong pursuit of Jesus, making Jesus more and more central to your life, bigger and bigger in your life, worshiping him daily, worshiping him every week together with other Christ followers. Now, again, we're going to sing a song across our four campuses that reminds us that Christ in us is our hope of glory. He's our everything. And we're going to collect our gifts as we do so. And then our campus pastors are going to come and close in a benediction and prayer.